Hey everybody, welcome once again to the Tomorrow's Tune In Podcast. I am your host, Chris Marshall, and this is show number 19 for the month of April 2009. Today on the show, something really special and a long time coming. I've got an interview with Michael Yuri and Michael Cronenberg on the upcoming Batcave Companion. And I also have a quick interview with Roy Thomas. Uh, Roy and I were supposed to be talking about his upcoming All-Star Companion Volume 4, but I had a little bit of a technical difficulty, so I got a little bit of about a 10-minute interview or so with Roy. Uh, And I'll talk a little bit more about that a little later on in the show. Hey, what can I say? Things happen. In the news this month, John Morrow wrote on his blog, and it's really good to see that this is coming along really well. After too many weeks of struggling with it, the new Jet Kirby Collector number 52 is off to the press, and the digital edition is already posted for downloading. This is one of the hardest to produce yet, due mainly to one article in it about an unused Thor story by Jack Kirby. And regarding the cover, John himself had been searching for that one since about 1995 when he first saw it in the background of a photo of Jack Kirby appearing at a comic book convention. It finally turned up compliments of Jack's grandson, Jeremy Kirby. John goes on to write in the blog, quote, That image was one of two Kirby art images that I swore I'd have to track down before I could stop doing the Kirby Collector or die, whichever came first. The other, any page from Jack's original version of Spider-Man, which Stanley rejected before turning the project over to Steve Ditko to draw. If you happen to be in possession of a copy or scan of that, make my dream come true and send it in. I'll give a lifetime subscription to all of our magazines to anyone who sends it in. So there you go. There's the incentive to bring it in. And, you know, that should be uh, out in the world anyway. That'd be great. If anybody has the original Jack Kirby Spider-Man, boy, what a treat that would to uh, to see. And that's it as far as the blog this month. Jo- uh, John has been very, very busy with projects. So to keep up with all the happenings over tomorrow's, come by the blog, subscribe with your favorite RSS reader. And, you know, it's the best way to keep in touch with everything going on at tomorrow's. Let's take a look at what's coming up this month in April 2009. And I want to do a quick rundown before I get to the interviews. Now, keep in mind that all dates are subject to change. Coming out Friday, April 3rd, we have Brick Journal 5, Volume 2, for $8.95. This is 80 pages. Full Color Issue number 5 takes you into the Lego building community with event reports from around the world, including Lego Welt, or Welt, which is in Germany, and also the Mindstorms 10th anniversary at LEGO headquarters. Also in the LEGO things, we're going to have Brick Journal Compendium Volume 3 coming out Friday, April 24th. This is $34.95 in a 224-page full-color trade paperback edited also by Joe Mino. Brick Journal Compendium Volume 3 compiles the digital-only issues of 6 and 7 of the acclaimed online magazine for LEGO enthusiasts for all ages for the first time ever in printed form. Coming out Wednesday, April 8th, we're going to have Rough Stuff number 12 for $6.95, 100 pages. Rough Stuff number 12 presents more interviews, articles, and never-before-seen pencil pages, sketches, layouts, roughs, and unused ink pages from the top artists in comics plus critiques of newcomers' work and more. This issue features an interview with comics painter Chris Moeller, 
who also contributes a stunning cover. And the cover of of that of Rough Summer Twelve is of Wonder Woman. And boy, it is it is stunning. It is incredible. Coming out Friday, April tenth, we're gonna have the Jack Kirby Collector number fifty-two, which I just talked about. Nine ninety-five, eighty-four pages, a tabloid format. This issue spotlights Kirby Obscura, uncovering some of Jack's most obscure work. April 15th, we're going to have the Batcave Companion, and a whole lot on that book coming up in a minute. It'll be $26.95. It's 240-page trade paperback, and of course, is written and edited by Michael Urie and Michael Cronenberg. Draw number 17 comes out Friday, April 17th for $6.95. It's 80 pages. Draw number 17 goes behind the pages of the hit series of the graphic novels starring Scott Pilgrim with his creator and artist Brian Lee O'Malley to see how he creates the acclaimed series. Modern Masters Volume 20 featuring Kyle Baker will be out in stores Friday, April 17th for $14.95. It's a 120-page trade paperback, and it is written and edited by Eric Nolan Wethington. Also on Friday the 17th, we're going to have Grail Pages, original comic book art in their collectors. Of course, I talked to writer and editor Stephen Allen Payne last month on the tune-in. This book is $15.95 and is a 128-page trade paperback. Grail Pages brings to light the burgeoning hobby of collecting the original hand-drawn art that was used to, to create comic books. And then slated for Wednesday, April 22nd, Modern Masters Volume 21, Chris Sprouse for $14.95, 128-page trade paperback edited by Todd DeZago and also Eric Nolan Wethington. So we've got a full lineup of books coming out in April, and like I said, dates are subject to change. But for now, let's get right to the interviews that I have. And first, I'm going to start out with Roy Thomas. And Roy, like I said, we were talking about his all-Star Companion Volume 4, but I was having, you know, it's coming in and out, and, and it just didn't click right, and it, you know, I did not get all the interviews, and it was really broken up, so I had to dump it, and I, I did manage to salvage, like I said, the last 10 minutes, where it, it sounds like we're fading out and going to wrap it up, but we don't. We, we talk for about eight minutes longer than when I, when I say goodbye, but we're going to be starting to talk about what's coming up with Alter Ego in his magazine coming out in May. But I really want to have Roy Thomas on again, hopefully at the end of May for the June podcast when All-Star Companion Volume 4 comes out because he had some great things to say about it, and I'm just really sorry I missed it. Uh, But anyway, we're going to take it with Roy talking about Alter Ego, and then uh, I'll do an introduction for Michael Urie and Michael Cronenberg on the Batcave Companion. So here we are with Roy for about 10 minutes. This Is this a a a recolored cover of what had... What we saw no, in the Richard, 1970s? No, Richard drew the figure of Captain Marvel and Superman fighting. Okay. Of course, with his cover, um, the original was inked by Giordano. Uh, Rich inked this one. But if it seems a little bit strange, it's because he reversed the two characters. That's what it is. That's, that's what it why is. It looks, that's why those figures look a lot. The, uh, since, they, you know, since they sort of had the, basically the same body uh, and so forth, um, are pretty close to it, he just he, he put Superman where... You know, in the Captain Marvel pose and vice versa, and that way, I like to do things like that, and and um, because we uh, that way you you have people see something familiar and yet it's not quite familiar. You know, like we've done things like that with the the, the first Earth One Earth Two JSA JLA cover, and just mm-hmm. switch the characters around or have different characters in the situation, something like that. 
Yeah, that's what I noticed because they're they're punching kind of the same manner, but they're they're reversed in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what it is. Sure. That's very tricky. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we like doing things like that. Uh, right. Alter Ego eighty five is ready to go. We're slated to see it in stores on May thirteenth. Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope that uh, the uh, All Star Companion. I, I ran a little. Uh, uh, a little late in uh, getting it together, so it, it depends on you know DC has to go over it to prove it. But if, if it's not if it's not out in June, it'll be out a week or two later. It'll, it'll be okay. out there pretty soon anyway. Well, I'm excited for both of these, so it's it's you know it's well, really good to see it coming out. Thank you very so. much. I'm sorry I've been a little difficult to uh, to get hold of, but I'm you know sort of balancing several different things now, and my my wife has sort of uh, decreed that I'm just working four days a week now, but I'm doing the same amount of work. I'm just doing doing it in a lot fewer days, so it's uh, it, it gets a little bit uh, tricky sometimes to get everything done. I've had to cut back on some things, you know, and, and that includes, you know, going to conventions uh, as, as often and, uh, you know, doing interviews and things like that. I've just had to kind of, uh, you know, parcel those out on a much more restricted basis because... You know, there's only so many hours in a day, and four days a week isn't very much time for somebody like me who's been used to working six or seven. Where are people going to be able to find you this uh, this convention season this summer? Well, I don't I don't know. I've not really planned. I just had to turn down one in Spain, in fact, where I really kind of wanted really? to go. But uh, uh, I always go to the, the Charlotte convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, which, mm-hmm. is, which is held around the middle or so of June. And I'm going to try to be there a couple of uh, days this time I, because uh, my friend Gary Frieder, who you know, created Ghost Rider, is there and a few other people. And uh, I think Dick Giordano. I think we'll have a Charlton panel since we all worked for Charlton you know, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, that'll, that'll probably uh, have to do me uh, for this year. I've been at, you know, I was just at WonderCon recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, think, I think it's probably going to have to do me because I, I just haven't got the time to be you know, uh, going anywhere right now. And uh, so, I, so I think uh, unless uh, – basically, if somebody wants me to come to the convention, I guess what they have to do is they have to choose – come from a city that my wife wants to visit. <laughs> that's, about, that's about the only thing that could, uh, could pull us somewhere is if there's some place that she wants to go, you know, maybe or something. Because I'm happy to go anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm always slaving over a, a hot computer here. You sure. know, I'm, I'm very happy to get out of the house and go anywhere. Well, I think it's funny because, you know, I'm a big proponent of collected editions, and I swear every time I get a new collected edition, whether it be, you know, a masterwork or something else, I always see your name writing the introduction. Well, they ask me. I don't go around volunteering and say, hey, can I write the introduction? <laughs> but I, I like doing it. I, I, uh, it it's, uh, again, sometimes it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, find the time to do it in between everything else, but I hate to turn any of them down. If if it's something that I've got something to, had something to do with and feel I can talk about, because, uh, I don't know, as a reader, I was always interested in these behind-the-scenes uh, glimpses, you know, and uh, there, there weren't a lot of them, but whenever there was one, uh, when Joe Kubert and Norman Maurer would seem to be talking straight to the readers of the St. John comics or, you know, something like that. I would, and, and Stan in the early days of Marvel or Julie Schwartz, I would always be fascinated by those glimpses or, and, and little stories of how the comics came, came about. So I just try to put all this down, uh, and it, it's sort of for some, you know, future historian or something so that it doesn't get, you know, lost. I mean, a lot of what I say in the, some of those introductions has been in Alter Ego or somewhere else, but it's nice to have it in a nice hardcover form published by the actual companies. Well, so whenever they started asking me to do them, 
um, you know, I was very happy to do them. I've done another one. I think it's coming out for a third volume of 1960s uh, Submariner uh, stories because, you know, I wrote the Submariner for quite a long time there in the late 60s and early sure. 70s. And, and I've got a couple more things coming out for uh, – uh, even for DC, so you know it's it's it, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun, and, and I you know if I'm not writing them, I enjoy reading them by other people, and I'm glad that DC and Marvel and other companies have decided to do it. I even ended up writing one for uh, what for creepy. I was just I, you know what I was just going to ask you about that because I was I'm doing on my podcast I'm doing an upcoming show on Alex Toth. And I was looking for some information on uh, Toth through your introduction. It was very brief. What what can you share with me about Alex Toth that uh, people may not otherwise know? Well, I mean, I sort of said what little – I didn't have much contact with him. I was an admirer of his ever since the late 40s when he was doing Green Lantern. And sure. A few Adam and Dr. Midnight stories. And I just loved this stuff from the first time I saw it. It was obviously, along with Kubrick, some of the best stuff you know being done in comics right away. Uh, he, of course, later disowned most of that work, and uh, you know, and and, he, and as he went into more and more, you know, design, almost storyboarding kind of thing, and and uh, I can see why that work is superior in a way. But I I, I gotta admit to a, a special fondness for his early, more romantic work. Uh, he was, you know, could be. I, I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, he could be a little difficult to get along with, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and everything, and uh, you know. He and I tried once to work on the story together, but it, it quickly came. We had never met or anything. It was just through the mail, but it quickly came to nothing through some sort of strange misunderstanding. And I probably forgot it, you know, and uh, all about it, or, you know, as far as holding it against him or hoping vice versa. And then about, you know, several years later, I ran into him at Los Angeles for about the first, and I think the only time in my life I ever met him. I walked up, introduced myself, and he said, oh, yes, you're the person I had this argument with a few years ago. <laughs> I mean, he really he held on to those grudges, you know. He, he never forgot one, and, uh, you know, he, he was very friendly, you know, mm-hmm. about it. But uh, he, you know, he, he never forgot uh, these little step-twos he had with people. That's and funny. Everything. And the rest of us would be trying to find ways to avoid talking about it, and he'd, he'd bring them right out. But uh, he, was, he was very jovial about it, and we parted on good terms, and we're on good terms for... You know, the rest of his life, when I was publishing a lot of these things in uh, Alter Ego, which he enjoyed seeing in print, and so did I. Mm-hmm. I wish somebody would, you know, collect all those in a book. I was thinking about doing it myself and talking to his heirs, but I just haven't had the time to, to uh, pursue it. Uh, so I'm hoping that somebody else will put all those. There are so many unpublished things that he, in, in addition to the published ones, there are many unpublished things that he wrote, and including a lot of drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, little drawings that went with it. He was always doodling Batman and the Shadow and all sorts of things. And it would be wonderful to see, you know, books put together with, with all of this. And there's a lot of, um, you know, wisdom and comments. And, and, you know, and just even the griping would be fun to read, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because we don't have the real Alex anymore, unfortunately. Right. So it'd be, it would be really great to have these memories of him. And there's a lot of stuff unpublished that uh, it would be great to see uh, in print. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Excellent. Well, Roy, thanks a lot for your time. I really, really appreciate it. For uh, you're always a busy man, and we love to have you on the show. So sorry if I was kind of rambling here, but uh, did the best I could. No, you're <laughs> always good. You're, and you know what? You are welcome anytime. Anytime if you got anything to advertise or do anything, just yeah. just let me well, know. Thank so. you. Thank you. My thanks again for Roy Thomas, and again, I really apologize for that. Like I said, I'm going to have him back on on the show. Hopefully. Uh, for the June podcast. But for now, let's get to the interview. And this is a full-length interview now with Michael Urie and Michael Cronenberg on the long-awaited Batcave Companion. 
All right, we are here with Michael Cronenberg and Michael Yuri, who are the authors of the upcoming Batcave Companion. Guys, thanks for being on the Tomorrow's Tune-In this week. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Again. Thank you. Uh, Michael Yuri, let's talk a little bit about how the Batcave Companion came about in the first place. I'll be happy to. Uh, it was one of three books that I had pitched a few years back to Tomorrow's publisher, John Morrow. Uh, companions related to three different DC Comics properties, Superman, Batman, and Justice League. And John opted for Justice League first, which I did in 2005 as the Justice League Companion. Then the next year I did the Krypton Companion, which was a Superman book. And uh, during that time, uh, Michael Cronenberg had, independent of, of his any knowledge of there was a Batman uh, or Batcave Companion in the works, uh, had pitched the same idea, essentially, to John Morrow. John let me know, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to work with somebody who's talented and and also uh, help manage some of the work because these uh, these companion books are, are are a wealth of fun. But I, I cannot uh, uh, convey to you how much work they are, and that's not a complaint. Just uh, just uh, a matter of fact that they just take uh, a lot of time to to read, you know, hundreds of comics, to, to really critically read them and, and, and then, then do the, the questions from that for your interviewers and then just decide exactly how you will cover those in the context of your book. So it's very labor-intensive and definitely a labor of love, but it was nice to, to spread the love between uh, my, my friend uh, Mr. Cronenberg. Now, Michael K., why was there uh, – this book is supposed to come out last summer. Why the, the little bit of a delay – in this project? Uh, well, the, the, the first delay that we had was we, we just needed more time. Mm-hmm. Um, as Michael said, there's uh, it's, a, it's labor-intensive. Um, it's fun, but it's labor-intensive. It takes up a lot of time. And To do the book right, we just needed a little extra time, and, and John was able to grant us that. Um, but at that point, we, we when I think John submitted the... Um, the date to DC, um, they further delayed it because uh, they didn't want the um, books released to interfere with the products and books they were releasing in conjunction with uh, the Dark Knight movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been a long time coming, and I know a lot of people are happy to see this. I know we've gotten a lot of email and requests for the book, and it's finally coming. So let's get into the, the meat of the book. And Michael E., <laughs> I'm gonna call you today, mm-hmm. Michael. What uh, what can we expect from this uh, type of companion? You've done the the Krypton one before, and you seem to focus on a certain point in the character's uh, longevity. What what point are we covering here with this book in particular? Well, we're covering two distinct periods: um, the second part of the Silver Age, which more specifically is the New Look which was, uh, it started in 1964 when editor Julius Schwartz took over Batman when it was uh, not doing very well sales-wise. And then the second part of the book covers the Bronze Age, specifically the 1970s, which is when Batman was returned to his creature of the night roots uh, from which he started. Mm-hmm. And what kind of research did you do? Did you go pick up like the, uh, the Neil Adams archives from D.C., or do you... What, how did you get the uh, the bulk of the information? 
Well, by reading a lot of comics. I mean, both read uh, a lot of comics. Michael. Yeah, I mean Michael K and I. Uh, <laughs> um, we we split the the workload uh, mm-hmm. in half. The 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 reading and research and, and writing workload. Um, essentially, we we kind of targeted our own childhoods, and uh, I've I've got a few years on him. So the Batman of the new look, and and uh, more specifically for me, the Batman of Adam West, you know, pal, zap, kapow, you know, zowie, tune in tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. That's what sucked me in as uh, an eight-year-old uh, back in the mid to late '60s. And uh, some, you know, uh, six, seven, eight, ten years later, he was a, a wide-eyed kid when Neil Adams and Dick Giordano and all these other guys like Denny O'Neill were basically uh, darkening Batman in the 70s. So we just allowed our childhoods to to dictate uh, who would do what. And uh, out of the chapters of the book, it's about um, probably 45 New looks, 65% um, uh, 70s material, just because there are more years that we covered in the Mm -hmm. 70s. But um, uh, there are a variety of chapters, most of which are essays that focus on specifics within those eras. We also have uh, uh, a number of Q&A interviews throughout, too, and some extensive issue-by-issue indexes. Michael K. What, Michael just touched on the interviews. Who did you guys interview for this book specifically? Um, well, uh, in, in Michael's section, which mm-hmm. is the section, he interviewed uh, Carmine Infantino, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Giella, and um, did you, you interviewed Sheldon Moldoff also? But that I did, I did. Yeah, not as a, that was uh, that was in a Q and A. Yeah, not in a um, Q&A format. His, his uh, interview quotes were uh, peppered throughout an article on uh, Bob Kane and his ghost artist. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I interviewed uh, Neil Adams and uh, Denny O'Neill. And, and in addition, I, I, I spoke to uh, Terry Austin. Um, I spoke to Len Wein, Steve Englehart, um, Bob Rizakis was a, was a great help. Um, he was Julie Schwartz's uh, assistant. Um, so, you know, there were, and a number of other, you know, people, but the, the Q&As, I think, Michael, our Q&As are just uh, Infantino, Giella, Adams, and O'Neill, correct? That's correct. And, uh, you know, Michael's list of interview subjects is, you know, obviously longer than mine, and that's just, uh, you know, the, the chasm of time uh, kind of divided that and, and gave me fewer people uh, I could speak with. Uh, curiously, though, I have to add two names to uh, people who were interviewed in, in the first section of the book, uh, Adam Hughes and Mike Allred, mm-hmm. which um, both have done some type of con- contribution to campy Batman mythos. Adam Hughes did a cover for uh, DC Comics Presents Batman back in 2004, which was a Julius Force tribute issue, and he basically did a contemporized version of a really campy 60s cover. And Mike Allred, in his solo issue published by DC, did uh, Batman A Go-Go, which basically uh, kind of took the, the TV Batman, put him in the comics context, and then all of a sudden threw him in a really dark reality. So... Uh, 
Yeah, I had to talk to Mike about that. That was just too cool to pass up. <laughs> um, just to add on about about the just specifically about the Adams interview, which I, I know Neil has been interviewed dozens and dozens of times, but uh, what's a little unique, I think, about this this interview was that I went up to his office, and this was several years back, um, and we went over issue by issue every single Batman story he drew. Oh wow! Raven the Bold all the way through. Uh, the Batman title. Yeah, it's and he very was, he thorough. Was... I have to. Uh, Michael K did a really good job on that. It. Uh, I, I was uh, not only impressed, but uh, even just a little, you know, jealous in a way. I mean, uh, Neil Adams' memory is is amazing, and um, you know, for better or for worse, having done this, interviewing you know different people who've worked in comics over the years, um, I have discovered that. The, the level of uh, uh, specific memories that people have uh, vary from individual to individual, and then sometimes um, time has colored things a bit to, to where people might not agree on who did what. And, uh, but uh, Neil Adams is just you know, very, very specific. And then plus, I, I think Michael had the benefit of having that face-to-face with him, having the comics right in front of him, too. And that's, that's certainly... Uh, uh, does a lot to to jar people's memories. Now, both you guys, you said you went over and read these comics over and over, and then you, you know, I imagine then you did your interviews. Did you get a new insight on these comics that you had just read for this project, and maybe take a new a new look at the comic, uh, Michael Geary? Um, actually, yeah, it, it's interesting to look back at some of these comics that I loved as a child and some of the stories I had read off and on over the years, but, but really look at them as a, with a critical eye and, and, and start to, to study um, exactly what made them what they were. Um, it, I, I was able to draw some interesting parallels between um, you know, the Batman comics and the Batman television show of the 60s and what really inspired what. Um, it I think a lot of people would assume that the camp of Batman of the 60s was really uh, generated by the television show and then replicated by the comics. And while that is to some degree true, uh, if you read the stuff that was happening in some of the Batman and detective comics prior to the television show, uh, the TV show producers just really borrowed what was going on? That stuff was uh, kind of getting goofy, right. um, and but and it was lighthearted, but also had some darker elements and some you know detective uh, elements. And I mean, a lot of the things that they've forgotten about Batman, you know, him being a um, uh, an escape artist and a master of disguise, and then the world's greatest detective. These things started to come back, but it was always kind of lighthearted and not to be taken too seriously. Michael uh, K, what about you? Did you get a new insight on these old comics that you otherwise missed? Um, you know, I I did. I, I read every Batman and every Detective comic from nineteen late sixty nine all the way to seventy nine. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, and Michael, you, know, you realize kid, this is actually the origin of the Flaming Carrot. I'm sorry to jump in, but you know the Flaming yes, Carrot. I know. Came well, the flaming no, carrot my, after my, reading. My, <laughs> yeah, my brain my brain was flaming afterwards. I'm telling you, <laughs> um, it was uh, what what was interesting was that you know the stuff that stood out, of course, was you know Adams and, and O'Neill stuff, and you know uh, Englehart and Rogers and Austin, what they did. But 
And that's the stuff you read over and over again. But, I mean, I got to read stuff that, you know, stories that I hadn't read, you know, since I was a kid or stories that I missed. And I grew, it, I had a, a better appreciation for um, for the 70s and for that stuff. Um, because you just forget about it. Um, I, I just uh, enjoyed it. And I, I what I really enjoyed was, because I have a, a great interest in, in the pulps of the 30s and 40s, was that, you know, the Batman of the 70s was very reminiscent um, of the pulp heroes. And those stories were kind of pulp crime stories for the most part. And um, so you really did go back. It was really a, 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 a retrofit to what Batman was in 39 when, when Finger and Kane created him. Um, he was such, he was influenced by, they were influenced by the shadow. And um, those 70s stories, I think, really reflect that. Um, and so I, I had a greater greater appreciation for that because I'm so interested in that subject to the pulse. Now, Michael, you're, you brought up an interesting point. There is such a difference between the campiness of the 1960s and then the creature of the night in the early 1970s when, when Adams came on. Did, you know, it was such, it such a contrast. Did DC, what did DC think of the TV show at the time? And did they think it was just so far out of whack that they wanted to make a drastic change to a darker, you know, finger cane creation? Do they want to do it sooner, or do they have to wait for the the campiness kind of to wear off to, before they changed over? Well, at the time, uh, the the television show ran out of steam. I mean, right. it, it was it was a fad, and uh, and even uh, they, they did a play on the word, uh, you know, Beatlemania, and, and Batmania became a a big uh, buzzword. However, uh, Batmania as a title had existed previously. Uh, as a fanzine title, which is is covered in the in the book, and it's been covered elsewhere as as well. But uh, by the time uh, 1968 or so, when that bubble had burst and the air was leaking out, uh, DC was wondering what to do with Batman again, because I mean, first of all, in 1964, Julius Schwartz and Carmine Infantino had more or less rebooted him with what we call the new look, and then. Then two years later, he's on TV and huge media darling, and then they camp up the comics even more to, uh, to match that. And then all of a sudden, they're scratching their heads yet again, just a couple of years later, what the heck are we going to do with this character? This isn't working anymore. Um, and so I think that there was some level of embarrassment uh, with some people. And as a matter of fact, it still lingers today. Mm-hmm. You will find, uh, you must talk to fans of uh, an age who remembered the Batman TV show and you're either going to get um, somebody who absolutely loves it because they thought it was fun as a kid or uh, they're mortified of this whole concept and that you know it, it killed Batman it ruined Batman it it, it, uh, it, it harmed us and it, it really is no middle ground that I've, I've ever really found uh, in talking with people so they were wondering what to do next and um, it's kind of one of these things where there there, there weren't these big uh, editorial getaways like you have now. Uh, you have these retreats where uh, you have a bunch of writers and artists and editors sitting in a circle discussing this, discussing that. Back then, they were just kind of like doing it every day. You know, it's their job. And so I think that they were pretty, you know, lucky to uh, find the formula, but... Uh, as far as you know, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams uh, doing these more gothic-oriented 
Batman stories, but it they 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 were. I'll let Michael talk about that a little bit because he was actually involved uh, in his essay about how this came to pass. Um, well, you know, it, similar to what Michael was saying was that you know the the, the TV show had run out of out of juice, and um, uh, I think that the sales started to wane for the Batman comics, and I think it seemed it was only natural that that Schwartz would go back. To want to go back to what Batman was, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that Neil Adams had started previous to Schwartz deciding to switch Batman back to his 1939 roots was that Adams, in a very subtle way, started changing the look of Brave and the Bolt when he was working on it. Um, he never changed uh, Bob Haney's scripts, um, but what he started doing was just portraying Batman at night and just with the way that Neil was able to draw, um, very gritty, very realistic, um, making Batman scary, making him a, a, a creature of the night. And that mm-hmm. came just from Neil as a kid. That's how he saw Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how he felt Batman should be portrayed. And he approached um, Julia Schwartz a number of times um, in the late 60s about, let me get on Batman. I think I know how Batman should be. Um, and it, t- it took a little time, and it, it took fandom and letters coming into Brave and the Bold saying, why isn't this guy working on, on the other Batman stories? This is the best Batman story, and this is the best Batman artist out there, and this is the way Batman should be. Hmm. In addition to Michael and I, as we were reading the comics, we read all the letters columns also, and mm-hmm. there was outpouring from the fans, you know, um, after the show had gone off, you know, and wanting Batman to go back to the way he was. You know, and I just wanted to touch on also this kind of this just misconception out there. It's it's not there's not a, a great deal of it, but I do hear it sometimes where people seem to give Frank Miller and The Dark Knight Returns the credit for you know busting Batman out of the um, uh, the camp mode, and it really was. You know, Neil Adams' efforts in Brave and the Bold, and then finally when he got, um, he hooked up with Denny O'Neill and they started writing in the uh, in Detective and Batman, mm-hmm. that um, Batman, you know, was able to get away from that and change back to that character that he originated in 1939. Michael Urie, what can you tell us as we wrap up here about the special tribute to Marshall Rogers? Well, I'll tell you a little bit. I mean, that was that was really in uh, at the in, end of Michael Cronenberg's section. But oh, was, okay, Michael, if you the... want to speak on it, then yeah. Okay, Mike. Um, well, uh, you know, we had uh, Michael and I had reached out to uh, to Marshall, and he um, he had agreed to an interview with us, and um, you know, unfortunately, he just he passed away so so tragically and so so quickly um, that. Uh, kind of left without that interview. I mean, I wish I could have talked to him. Um, but I was able to reach out and connect with Terry Austin. And Terry gave the, gives us a really terrific, candid um, recollection of his times working with Marshall uh, in the 70s. And um, when they got back together uh, in 2005 to do the sequel to, um, uh, along with Steve Englehart, uh, the sequel to the 1970s running detective. Uh, so uh, he was able to give me this great recollection of working with Marshall in the 70s and then working with Marshall 
so many years later, and he really gives this great objective tribute and um, remembrance of, of Marshall, not only the artist and working partner, but uh, but of his friend. And some, some really some really great stuff. The, the stuff that, that Terry tells us about the um, his stuff and his working in the seventies with uh, with Marshall uh, at the DC office is uh, is really fascinating. And it's really you go you know behind uh, behind closed doors at DC offices in the in the mid seventies. It was really terrific stuff. Yeah, that's that's very true. It uh, it it ended the the book not necessarily on a on a sad note, but but one where you just kind of you wonder uh, uh, why why this this happens. I mean, one of the one of the byproducts of, of chronicling comics history is obviously it's, we're all human beings, and human beings pass away. You're you're, you're working with people. It's, it's been it's been something that's been very bittersweet for me, and particularly as the editor of Back Issue. You know, we've got this magazine that's been going on for six years now, and I hate writing obituaries. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, turning out obviously that uh, I have to do so uh, more and more. And I, I think when when we have to say goodbye to these creators. Sometimes we have personal connections with them, and that's that's difficult. Sometimes you're saddened because you know that you won't see their work again. And then there's also the more personal side where you know that there's yet another piece of your own childhood has uh, has crumbled. And uh, I mean, for me, when whenever Adam West, God forbid, ever leaves this earthly plane, that's that's going to be probably the the last vestige of of my childhood. Uh, <laughs> That will uh, erode, but uh, it is the bittersweet aspect of, of doing this. But nonetheless, the, the flip side of that and the positive aspect is we do get to, in the case of Marshall Rogers, you know, honor his work and celebrate his work. And uh, and with some folks, I've had the pleasure of actually being the last person to speak with them to chronicle their work. And, you know, when you're 80-something years old, 90 years old, and your comics career is many decades past, these fellows really do appreciate hearing directly how much their work has meant to us. And that's, mm-hmm. that's I think, the true joy of doing this kind of project. Um, just in, in addition to about, about Marshall, I just wanted to, to say that, you know, we do have a lot of great, besides, you know, Terry's Remembrance and, and, and Steve Englehart talking about a lot of great art of Terry's. In, in the book, as we do throughout the book of, you know, f- from the 60s through the 70s, we have uh, some really superior, fantastic work um, that we uh, that we showcase. Well, guys, I'm looking forward to it. The Batcave Companion is coming out mid-April, and uh, I hope no more delays, Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let's well, you know, book. like we say, it's coming out on tax day too, so there's a little bit of joy on April. That's 15th, right. guys thanks for being with me today I appreciate it you're welcome thank you for having us I want to thank Michael Yuri, Michael Cronenberg and Roy Thomas for coming on the show even if Roy was only on here for a few minutes Uh, like I said hopefully I'm going to have Roy back on again for the June podcast I know I've said that quite a bunch but oh my god I'm so sorry for that to happen I want to thank you the listener for coming by the Tomorrow's Tune podcast this month and if you got a chance hey go out and support all of our books here at Tomorrow's Come by 
the website at tomorrows.com for all the latest and greatest. Again, like I said earlier in the show, please subscribe to the blog. And thank you very much for subscribing to the podcast. Any email and feedback can be sent to me, Chris Marshall, and you can reach me at CollectedComicsLibrary at gmail.com. Collected Comics Library is my own podcast where I talk about collected editions and trade paperbacks. Come by that website at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. And if you get a chance, come by iTunes and leave an iTunes review. I really, really appreciate it. So until next month, everybody, hey, go out there and pick up the Batcave Companion. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next month.